A very warm welcome to everybody today um, to the launch of our new report, Development Finance Institutions, the Need for Bold Action to Invest Better. My name is Sam Attridge and I'm a Senior Research Fellow here at ODI and my work focuses on development finance institutions, national development banks and the use of public money to mobilise private money for investment in the SDGs. So I'm going to make some very, very quick uh, remarks just to set the scene about the report. And then I'm going to quickly introduce the panel and then we're going to get this conversation going. So uh, the report that we're launching today examines the investment portfolio of 12 development finance institutions and multilateral development banks. And that's the, the private sector operations of, of these banks. And we look over the period of from 2013 to 2018, so it's pre-COVID. And these institutions accounted for about 70% of the private finance that's been um, reported to the OECD. So quite a, a representative sample of the wider universe. So in a nutshell, we find that these institutions are, are at a, a critical juncture, an inflection point. Um, and we found kind of or think that the increasing emphasis uh, by the international community on mobilising private investment has now been accompanied since 2015 by increased expectations on what these institutions should be doing. Um, but um, we find that their business models have been slow to adapt. So in, in summary, very briefly, we find some, you know, some good news, some green shoots emerging. Uh, we see a, an actual reallocation in the portfolios of these institutions towards lower middle income countries and low income countries. So uh, investment away from upper middle income countries, suggesting a shift in their risk appetite, increased leverage, and also that their investment is growing. However, um, you know, if we think about the challenge that, that we face, we find um, or observe that progress collectively has been has been slow. So DFI and MDB investment has been actually growing quite slowly at an annualised rate of about 1.6%. And I don't, you know, we haven't really cracked this kind of mobilisation at scale issue, especially from institutional investors. And we also find a dominance of debt in the product mix. Um, and we've seen that actually this has increased over the period that we looked at. So enough about the report and we'll post the link later in, in the chat room online and it can be found on our website. So we've got an incredible panel today of industry leaders. I'm really, really excited to have this opportunity to reflect with the panel on this um, inflection point and explore what kind of bold action we need. So joining me today um, and in no particular order of importance are Catherine Steger, Head of Public Sector Coverage uh, in Europe um, at Standard Chartered Bank, Joyce Zudberg, who's the CEO of Cardano Development, Andrew Herskovitz, uh, Chief Development Officer of the US International Development Finance Corporation, and Jean-Philippe de Chirel, uh, founder and managing partner of Bamboo Capital Partners. So we have a, a, a great large online audience today with over 320 participants registered. And we're really going to encourage our audience uh, to ask questions and participate in our conversation. And you can do this by entering your questions in the box below this video or on the audio stream. Additionally, Please use the hashtag action to invest better to tweet your action, your questions and comments about this event. And you can find us at ODI underscore global. Uh, 
So let's get this conversation going. So Andrew, I'm going to start with you. Um, so I mentioned briefly, you know, that there's these new expectations about what DFIs are expected to do. And by that, I mean you know, that um, I think they've been increasingly tasked to move beyond a narrow focus on job creation to focus more on you know, making transformative investment to create markets and or mobilise private investment at scale, especially from institutional investors. But at the same time, they're also expected to remain financially viable and or profitable. So um, how have the US DFC's objectives changed and what tensions are there between these and how do you juggle these? So the US International Development Finance Corporation, its objectives haven't really changed because it's a new organization. We've existed for just over a year. And this is part of the mentality we have to get people to understand not USA's Development Credit Authority anymore. So what we are is we're a completely new organization that our Congress created. But part of the part of the issue is that all the staff from those two other organizations brought together to create this new organization. So there's still this mentality shifts. And so there are a couple of key changes that happened with the establishment of, uh, of DFC. One, we were given equity authority, which is, so that's what everybody talks about the most. But I don't think that's the most significant difference. Um, and I'll get to what I think the most significant difference is. Two, um, we no longer have to have a US nexus with our lending. So we can uh, provide lending or financing it instruments to, to local companies, even if there's no U.S. involvement in that. And that's such a great opportunity for us, one, from a development standpoint, but also from the opportunity of creating potential linkages and trade opportunities as we get involved with local companies and we learn of subtracting opportunities or trade leads or investment leads for U.S. companies. So it helps us become more integrated in the system. Uh, another one of the key changes, though, that people don't really talk about is the way that we are funded from the U.S. Congress is we get an appropriation and we don't have a shareholder. Our shareholder is the U.S. taxpayer, but there's no legal requirement that we earn a return for the U.S. taxpayer. What that does is it allows us to really play in the development space in a way where I've seen DFIs and, 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 and um, multilaterals drift you know, increasingly closer and closer to the commercial space. And this is why when Congress created DFC, they gave us this, this, this mandate to prioritize investments in low income and lower middle income countries because private capital will go into upper middle income countries. And we still have the authority to do that. But ultimately, where we should be prioritizing our efforts are in these low income and lower middle income countries, ones that tend to get left behind. So we have tremendous space now to play the role of what a DFI really should be doing and playing much close somewhere in between a development institution and a commercial bank, as opposed to really close to a commercial bank. The other thing that, that, that I've been pushing, you know, as the first chief development officer is getting people to understand that I don't really care how much money we move. Like, I don't think it's wonderful if we move $60 billion. I care more about the quality of the transaction. Just because you invest a billion dollars doesn't mean that you're having a development outcome. I want to know what the metric is that we're using to measure that development outcome. As a taxpayer, you know, if I want to make money, I'm not going to invest it in a government institution. So, so the whole idea that a huge ceiling is great, it can be great, but that ceiling, that th those investments have to be made with a clear outcome in mind? Is it getting people access to potable water, getting people access 
internet, getting people access to electricity. It's not just about the deal, it's about the outcome. And this is what where DFC is increasingly focusing more and more. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. And I think perhaps some of the other panelists may touch more on this kind of the, the transformative impact, maybe rather than the kind of the numbers, the, the scale kind of numbers. Uh, so maybe turning to you, Catherine, uh, from St Standard Charter's perspective, I guess just also to do a little bit of scene setting for this conversation. Um, the recent MDB and DFI mobilization report uh, for 2019, which was released in January, showed you know that private the the amount of private finance mobilized had declined but also if you look at the world bank's public private participation infrastructure investment we see a huge a huge drop off in the first half of 2020 about 56 percent so it looks to me that the job of dfis uh, has just got a whole lot more difficult so i'm wondering um you know reflecting what do you think are the briefly the the kind of short-term medium-term prospects for this agenda are and then kind of in light of that what kind of innovations do you think are needed uh, from from DFIs to kind of mobilize private investment no thanks um, I mean I think I think you're absolutely right there has been a slowdown in the the private infrastructure investment in in general um you know, if I should take infrastructure itself as an investment group you know in 2019 standard chartered made commitment to to help with financing of 40 billion of infrastructure financing by 2024 and we are behind schedule on that um you know, just because the underlying activity is is not there and, and not happening um but we are beginning to see things tick upwards again and actually, if anything, that underlines the importance in uncertain economic times of the DFI and the multilateral community, frankly, more, more than it ever has been needed. Um, I think you're absolutely right. There is a trade-off between, or very often a trade-off between innovation and between scale. Um, the dream is to have innovative structures, innovative solutions that can be scaled up and that help crowd in more and more private capital. The reality is very often to innovate, there is, you know, and Andrew made a great point, it, it is about looking at the impact sometimes rather than necessarily the returns and getting the right balance and seeing even more of the DFI community willing to take the risks or look at the pricing that is needed to do something different and do something innovative. Um, and I think having the right partnership between the commercial sector and the DFIs to help identify the additionality and the impact of structures is, is absolutely key. I think there's a lot more all of us can do in the distribution space. Um, so not just looking at how we crowd in at inception in the private, se private capital, but once we've got things up and running, essentially the exit route for, for DFIs and for MDBs. And, and I think there's some good work that's being done in that space. But that's something that as the underlying activity begins to scale up, we can do more. I think it's really refreshing that the institutional investor community is more and more interested in how they can be supporting sustainable and developmental um projects and impacts and I think how we think about their measurement and ability to tap into that on a much more programmatic and scaled up basis is going to be really key and I think there's something incumbent on the DFI community and those of us in the private sector working in partnership with them to be thinking about that from the very early stages rather than that being a last stage that we try to shoehorn 
things together and try to solve it at the very end of a process. You know, so, for example, actually, I look at some of the work we've done, for example, with CDC in the trade finance distribution space. Actually, building that up to a more programmatic approach, it's slow to get there initially. And once you do that, things move a lot more efficiently. I think the work that's been done on collaboration, rather than perhaps, if I dare say it, some of the DFIs working in a little more of a competitive space, has been really great to see over the last few years. And I think that's going to have much more impact again on having more structures that are replicable, can be taken into different places. But I think we're going to come and talk about the lower income markets a little bit more later on. We have to be aware of regulatory constraints, capital constraints. And if we want to be doing more in the local currency space, which is hugely important, that does make things harder to scale up and put together funds affecting multiple markets. And I think we need to recognise those trade-offs. And as Andrew said, think about the impact that's being made. Okay, thank you very much. Um, um, Joist. Um, so, as I said, I think our report finds that you know, there are these expectations, especially around, and I think picking up on this point around impact, so more impactful um, investments. So, um, but we don't find that the business models have kind of changed. So, your organisation, Cardano Development, is a well-known kind of innovator and incubator, uh, as well as a fund manager. What do you think kind of constrains DFI innovation to invest if you like, for this transformative impact to, to kind of really create markets in some of these challenging markets. Yes, Sam, thanks. Um, I wanted to say that my comments are going to be in the light of, um, I'm a big fan of DFIs. I used to work at one and I, all of what we do is supported by capital from DFIs. At the same time, uh, uh, I'm looking at it critically in the sense that um, what the DFIs have been extremely good at in the last decades is also uh, becoming one of the reasons why perhaps in mobilizing other people's money, they are less effective. And what I mean by that is that if you see what have the DFIs developed uh, as a very core strength is deployment of their capital to do good and well risk managed transactions. Um, at one hand, at the second hand to become very efficient organizations to, um, uh, to say it bluntly, to spend the least amount of hours for the dollar um, put to work. And if you look at, uh, in contrast, the work needed uh, and the results made in mobilizing other people's capital, um, it play, does not play into either of those two strengths. It, the, the activity does not lead to, in particular, uh, assets deployed and its harder work Per, uh, per effect. So uh, if you look at uh, the impact uh, to be had with, um, with mobilizing capital, there is no doubt everyone understands that this is a good thing. However, the, the metrics and the, the targets of those KPIs associated with that are to some degree crowded out by perhaps more urgent KPIs uh, to achieve deployment of assets into the real economy. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We can um, perhaps now turn to Jean-Philippe for, for your uh, reflections as an impact investor. I'm sure you'll pick up on some of these issues that have been, been raised around, you know, 
what do you do and, and why do you do why do you do that well thank you thank you sam um you know briefly bamboo first is um is an impact investor we've been around the last 14 years and i think we've deployed over half a billion dollar in, in small loans and small investments in, in SMEs in emerging and, and frontier markets, focusing essentially on what is called the missing middle, meaning those companies that need small amounts of money, you know, as low as $250,000 all the way to $5 million. And, and the companies we invest in, you know, provide basic services to low-income populations, access to financial services, healthcare, energy, education, and um, they do so increasingly using technology um, as a way to improve the affordability and the accessibility of the services they, they sell and they provide. And I must say that it's really a, a tough segment to, um, to invest in. It's also very costly to invest in. And um, I, I, will, I will tell you in all transparency that it's a segment where asset managers are not in the business of making money, uh, otherwise they, they they would leave the segment very very quickly, um, and they would you know migrate to uh, the twenty to fifty million dollar average size tickets. We we stay true to our mission, which is the you know one million dollar average type ticket. Now, recently, in order to improve our, our work and to grow it faster, uh, frankly, we have uh, teamed up. And we have structured um, innovative partnership with uh, UN agencies and, and international NGOs, such as the United Nations Capital Development Fund, the International Trade Center, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, the Stop TV Partnership, Smart Africa, Care USA, etc. And the idea is, of course, that those partners bring their massive presence on the ground, their deal sourcing abilities, technical assistance, impact assessment capabilities, and we provide you know, the financial discipline, the portfolio management, the investment process experience. And we feel that it's a real win-win partnership and complementarity of work, of work on the ground. Um, now, in the context of those partnerships, we have structured what is called blended finance vehicles. And we are now, you know, trying to put them together so that we can basically kill two birds with one stone. One is to be sizable enough so that we could attract the private sector, institutional private sector, to, uh, to those funds and and yet remain true to the mission of staying in the missing middle and not you know having mission drift and, and drifting apart to the bigger size of the market where it's more profitable and easier to place money. And uh, Sam, I have accepted your, your invitation to this panel today because we have the capa capacity, we have the chance of raising several hundreds of millions of dollars for that segment provided we find a few tens of millions of dollars of catalytic money from the public sector and DFIs. And guess what? We don't find it. So, you know, at the time where we all talk about public-private partnership, blended finance, de-risking and catalyzing the private sector, I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm puzzled and I'm wondering what's going on. And, um, but asking, you know, responding to your question of what we do, we, we operate in the trenches. And the perspective I'm getting, I'm sorry, is only with small numbers and, and from the trenches, but where I hope you will recognize that where true impact and, and, and verifiable impact is being generated. So I'll, I'll stop here, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And perhaps I'll put you on alert that maybe later in the conversation, I mean, you, may, you raised a really important issue around 
size, ticket size of, of investment, uh, particularly in kind of uh, some of the more challenging challenging of markets. So how how can DFIs you know kind of help you kind of uh, reach uh, or fulfil that that middle gap? Um, I think it's really important. But also, I think you're you're raising this issue around where the additionality is in terms of I guess in these higher risk kind of higher risk capital. Um, and our report found, as I say, a kind of a, a high use of, of debt finance. And, and we suspect, uh, we can't confirm because of, of data, but a lot of that is in the form of senior debt. So there is this need for kind of high risk capital. So maybe we can reflect a bit more on that later in, in the discussion. So. Sam, I apologize. You're muted. We can't hear you. Oh. <laughs> you would you would think after a year of this, I would have cracked that. So my apologies, everybody. Um, so let's turn Andrew to you. Um, as I say, mobilisation has been been increasing. Actually, we've been seeing it um, that being driven by MDB certainly up to 2019, where we've seen this fall off. Um, but we're not really mobilizing that scale yet. And I mean, I know you, you mentioned around impact being the kind of like imperative, but there is this vision, you know, and you hear all the time about, you know, tapping institutional investors to, to kind of really shift capital at the scale we need. Um, and in our report, you know, we, we say this needs kind of portfolio aggregated approaches which diversify risk. What, what challenges do you see as USDFC with this kind of scale agenda and what kind of approaches do you do, you know, to kind of really attract that institutional investment? So mobilizing at scale, it's, it's not necessarily, it's an opportunity. And I think we've learned a lot over the last few years. And I think back to when I was living in Africa, working on Power Africa, for example, we were supporting a program that brought U.S. institutional investors, pension funds, to Africa to look for opportunities to invest and to partner with, with other African uh, companies. And successfully, there was one investment from US pension fund in Kengen, for example. But what we came to realize is that the real capital that we need to mobilize is the local pension funds and the local sovereign wealth funds. And here's why. There's no better risk sharing partner than a local pension fund or a local sovereign wealth fund. If you're an outside investor coming in, you can have a choice between having your local partner be some guy who is the cousin of a minister and hope that everything's going going to go well. But what I've seen happen time and time again is it does not go well. Or you can have as your partner a local pension fund. And no head of state wants to see a project that that local pension fund is invested in uh, go belly up. So that is the best risk sharing partner that you can, you can ask for. In addition, if you can structure deals in a way where the local pension fund is willing to take a senior tranche, but maybe cap its upside, that will help some of the institutional investors from overseas who are looking for double digit IRRs come in and possibly mobilize that capital. But the challenge that you face with certain institutional investors, particularly from the United States is, when a country like Ghana issues a bond with a coupon rate of 8%, nobody wants to take the risk on, on an infrastructure project where the IRR is going to be 9%. So you have to create incentives for these institutional investors to come in. Uh, so that that's, that's one point about mobilization. The other point that I'll make about large-scale mobilization is that 
it goes back to my early, early earlier point about DFIs billing, being willing to take more risk and incur some losses. And I think that DFC is uniquely positioned to do this. I think back to the solar investments in Chile a decade ago, where a lot of the DFIs and, and, and MFIs actually lost a lot of money on those investments, but those were large scale solar doing um, competitive tenders. But by being involved in those projects, they helped shape the market that allowed for future auctions in Mexico, in UAE, and all over the world where you saw solar prices come down from probably over 30 cents per kilowatt hour to, to sometimes three cents a kilowatt hour. And it's because the role of the public sector institutions and in being the first movers and helping shape those markets. And that's how you get to scale. So we have to take way more risk on the front end. Right now, DFC just entered into a partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation to try to mobilize investment in the distributed renewable energy space, mini grids, microgrids, things that everybody loves to talk about and saying it's the leapfrog and how power is going to work in the future. The truth is it's just not commercially viable yet. But we're going into this looking in the next five to 10 years to see if we can help shape that market and get it to scale so that 10 years from now, there's not a need for us to be investing there. So we have to be willing to invest on the front end, take our losses, but help shape the future market so commercial banks can step in in the future. Andrew, just just quickly, uh, I mean, on that, I mean, um, you know, DFIs aren't homogeneous; they're heterogeneous. So you you said you're funded by appropriation. Actually, you don't have to necessarily make make a profit. Some DFIs, you know, rely on issuance on on the capital market. So I guess the degree to which DFIs can take this risk varies. But I, I guess it'd be quite interesting just to hear your view on. Can can DFIs? Um, I mean, there's a few, I say, on, especially on the bilateral side, which don't necessarily fund themselves in the capital markets. But this need for high risk investment does have an issue, or potential. You know, there's risk risk to profitability. So how how can we get more of this high risk kind of investment capital from DFIs? What needs what needs to change uh, from the DFI business models? I think that governments need to look at the fundamental organizational structure of what their DFIs and remember why they created them in the first place and look at what they've gravitated towards. So if you think about it, if you're working on a deal team at a DFI or an MFI and you're getting a pat on the back for every deal that earns a lot of money and the size of the deal, you're never going to gravitate towards that small project in Guinea. You're always going to be looking for that large scale project with the higher IRR. So there's a, just a, there's a cultural problem with what's been created. Similarly, we've heard people for years saying that DFIs and IFIs, once they help you know, shape the market with that early investment and take on that early risk, they should be selling off their portfolio, but they're not gonna do it because the way that they're structured means that they need to have that income. So, so I love what the US government has done. And I think, I honestly don't know that a ton of thought went into this, but I've discovered that for me, this is the most significant difference between OPIC and DFC and that we get a year, an, a, an appropriation from our Congress year after year, and that's the way that it's structured. And we can pay the money back. I mean, we can earn money back or we don't have to. But Congress created DFC for the purpose of advancing development and foreign policy. And if we earn a return to the U.S. taxpayer, that's great, but it's not required. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Um, Catherine, uh, so as I say, uh, and I mentioned in our remarks that we've seen the, a kind of a reallocation overall, if you like, away from upper middle income countries towards 
more investment in lower middle income countries and, and low income countries. Um, but still, you know, still a huge challenge to, to invest in these, these countries and, and they receive quite a small share, if you like, of DFI in investment. What do you think are kind of the main constraints to this agenda in, in these kind of markets? And, and is there something you think that DFI should do more of or differently, you know, to, to try and really um, create markets in, in these kind of environments? I mean, I, I should probably start by saying I, I'm slightly biased here because Standard Charter, we are operating in and on the ground in quite a number of um, low income markets. So that's actually where we are partnering with many DFIs. Um, so so perhaps um, I'm, I'm the wrong person to answer the question. But I, I, I think there's a lot of good work, but I think it's recognition of some of the constraints and a willingness to be flexible and look at markets differently. Um, uh, it should just be fairly obvious, but you, that there are often interest rate caps that you need to deal with. So if you're looking at on lending structures, the regulatory approvals that might be required to meet the commercial bank as an intermediary or the DFI's requirements, and perhaps touches on Andrew's point of requirements on returns, um, that a recognition that, that that may be a barrier. You can put in place a an on-lending structure as we did in Zimbabwe with the DFI a few years ago, there are regulatory changes and the entire model just doesn't work anymore when the currency changes. Um, you, you, sometimes you've got to roll with those changes, realise they're there and, and look at alternative ways um, to work with that. I think there is a lot we've touched a little on local currency and need to try to look at how funding can be done more in that, be it through the use of TCX, through the use of counterparty swaps, be it through you know more direct lending um, and looking at the adjustment in returns. And I'm sure Juice will talk a little more about that um, in a while. I think there's also a role for the non-DFIs, for the ministries and others to look at policy engagement, whether it is those interest rate caps, whether it is the ability of municipalities to directly borrow versus things going through the state. There's also a question, and, and this obviously varies by by who, who the organisation is on, on mandate. Actually, a lot of low-income markets, the role of state-owned enterprises or very heavily state-owned um, or administered organisations can actually be absolutely vast in the financial institution space for on-lending, be it to SMEs, to microfinance institutions, to corporates that have a real economy impact. Um, as well as, for example, national development banks and having a remit that permits some funding and engagement with that space rather than purely private sector can have quite a transformational impact, but that requires um, the mandate to be able to do that. So I think that those are just some of the things that I think are worth bearing in mind um, and thinking through how that mandate or return policy can allow for a bit more innovation and taking a different approach to normal in selected markets to have that initial impact. Okay, thank you. Um, Jean-Philippe, turning, turning to you and uh, putting our hats on to think about, about the future, I guess, you know, kind of our report is saying that, you know, business models need, need to change. Um, how do you think DFIs can can invest better to, to kind of mobilize investment in these markets? Well, you know, that's that's a that's a difficult question to answer, and, and I'm maybe not the one person to answer that. Um, 
what I can give is my perspective again from the trenches <coughs> and and from the the missing middle indoors emerging and frontier markets um, and and just sharing the difficulties we we are facing and how we're seeing reactions from DFIs that are not very conducive to solving problems uh, sometimes. And, and again, we work with DFIs, we have great relationship with DFIs, so I don't want to throw the baby with the bathwater, of course, and it's difficult to speak in general terms about DF, DFIs because they all are very different, as you know. Um, this being said, frankly, in general terms, uh, and, and mostly across the board, we find DFIs uh, having a high level of uh, risk aversion. Uh, they are not, um, as you said, uh, Andrew, they are probably not structured to take or incentivized to take risks, um, or the mission is not clear enough. Um, or if the mission is clear, then it doesn't go into that direction. Um, for example, on, on the so-called bandit finance structures, no no DFI whatsoever would take a first loss tranche investment, would take a catalytic you know, a tranche investment. None. We've talked to many of them. None to date. Uh, then it's difficult, of course, if you don't go through guarantees to de-risk the private sector, if you're not going to take that risk, right, uh, and be the, the catalytic um, capital. Um, some, some DFIs would even not invest in funds, they would just lend to funds and, of course, be the first on the waterfall at the end of the life of the fund and taking recourse on assets and you know that's that's not very brave right it's it, it can provide uh, cheap financing to the fund but by leveraging it not by investing in it and taking the you know senior risk position when actually you know first first loss is what we really need uh, to catalyze private sector um so in a nutshell there, it seems that when we talk sometimes to DFIs, we, we might as well talk to senior institutional private investors right away because they behave the same way, right? Um, the second thing I would say is, um, and that's of course probably linked to the first point, it, is that when you, <clears throat> when you come in general terms again to a, a DFI with a new ID, a new structure, a new financial tool, a new model, a new partnership, there's no incentive to embrace innovation, uh, at least not across the board and not systematic. I mean, again, we, we've come with this, um, to take an example with this structure where we uh, aggregate different, you know, blended finance impact funds with different partners and two or three DFIs that we approached told us, look, this is, this is exciting, this is really good, but frankly, it's too complicated for us to analyze. So good luck with that. Okay, but what are you talking about? I'm inventing a new model. I'm scaling. I'm scaling a difficult part of the market. I'm attracting private sector, and you're telling me it's too difficult to analyze. Um, and that's a pity. Um, you know, we've also been told, for example, and just I'm, I'm just trying to be very specific, that it's easier. I mean, I'm putting words in in mouths here. Uh, maybe I shouldn't, but. Um, it's easier to dump another $50, $100 million on a partner and a manager that we've worked with for the past 10 years than go into a new relation with and an, an onboard a new partner or a new manager and spend time to, to, to get to know him and get to know his new ideas. And so in terms of efficiency as a manager, and I'm not criticizing, I'm just flagging that this, this is something that could change, hopefully. No, these are um, criticisms and they're spot on. They're spot oh, sorry, on. Okay. Okay, well, it, it's because I'm living them every day, you see, and then, uh, 
And then we come to them and say, well, instead of dumping another $50 million on something that manages already $2 billion, why don't you look at something very innovative and very new that could actually break bottlenecks and be scaled up later? As you said, we are creating new markets or new ways of addressing gaps in the markets that nobody goes to, Andrew. And it's very tough. And then last but not least, um, certainly not least, it's it's the, the fact, and I understand where it's coming from, and again, it's not a criticism, but the fact that most EFIs have a very siloed approach, right? I'm interested in gender in Africa. Don't talk to me about gender in Latin America. And then, no, I'm interested in energy, but you know what? Not in Latin America. I prefer Asia. And then you, you start talking to a three or four DFIs, and suddenly your investment strategy becomes just impossible. Because if you try to satisfy the criteria of all those you know, DFIs, it, it, it's just impossible. And the problem is not that you know, we, we cannot raise money on a fund-by-fund -fund basis, but our problem, again, working with the missing middle, with the small ticket sizes in difficult countries, if you really want to attract private sector, you need to scale. Right? And in order to scale a fund that invests an average loan size or an average ticket size of $1 million, you need to aggregate those funds because on a per fund basis, I will never get to a $500 million or billion dollar fund managing average, average ticket size of $1 million. That's not possible. I cannot manage that. But it's the condition for me to attract serious private sector institutional money to those, you know, to those funds, to this missing middle. So how do I do that? Well, I solve for scale by aggregation. But if by aggregation, I'm facing DFIs telling me, I like this, but I don't like that. And I like that, but I don't like this. There's no way I can have the catalytic capital to get me to scale. See what I'm saying? And so that's 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 another problem. So sorry, Sam, but if, if, if in my day-to-day -day life, I have to flag three things, it's be more risk averse, Embrace innovation and don't think siloed. That's it. Thank you, Jean-Philippe. I mean, I think it's important to hear, you know, perspectives from those trying to trying to do this. Uh, so, really value your things, and I and I think you stimulated some some responses from your fellow panelists. Um, but maybe just actually, maybe what just to just because there's time's tight. Maybe what I'll do is I'll I'll, I'll go to Joyce to kind of because I've got a question for you, and then maybe we can just bounce off of each other. A little bit on some of those remarks and then we will open the floor for q a with with the audience so Joyce, um what do you think uh, can drive uh, dfi investment to better support this kind of transformative change that we talk about yeah and then um just uh, again um from my perspective what we do is capital markets development which uh, actually andy as you say you can talk about it in the international markets or in the specific local markets within a number of these countries. And we do both. Um, and um, my, um, my message would be very much the same line as what Jean-Philippe just said. Size is extremely important. And when you want to innovate and create something that doesn't exist yet, in our experience, how we deal with the DFIs is that um, you don't actually bring them in in the first step. You have to wait until you are more established. And then the problem with that is that who else is there that can help you with the first step? It is the donor organizations and the agencies, which are fine for risk. They're very patient for yield, but 
they don't have the depth of knowledge that the DFIs have. So what we end up being is we, we end up having to partner with very willing partners, donor organizations who trust us to do the right thing, but who are not the most optimal partner because they don't know themselves whether what you're doing makes sense. If you want to develop the Nigerian capital markets or, um, or work in, um, in SME finance in, uh, in Kenya, right? So, um, so there's a little bit of a mismatch in timing. We, we have to wait until the second or third year to bring in the DFIs because they don't have the risk appetite to come in at the first stage. And, and, and therefore, um, um, uh, the partnerships are not as, as, as deep as they could be. Um, for me, one of the things that I find in my discussions with DFIs, talking about market development and mobilization, is that the KPIs that are associated with mobilizing money from all other people, whether this is local capital market development or bringing in the private sector uh, more generally, those KPIs are not the primary KPIs that these institutions are driving for. They're driving for jobs, for CO2 emission reductions, they're driving for gender, uh, but market development either doesn't exist there as a, as a, as a KPI of interest, or it's not the primary um, focus, or thirdly, it's actually pretty hard to do. Um, and not very many people are involved in trying to think about what is a good market development and, and, and uh, 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 KPI. I mean, people understand how you mobilize money. So if I bring a, a, a private uh, commercial bank in, uh, I can measure that. But the, the quality of your work is hard to, um, to catch. Thank you. Um, so just, I say, the panel have, have um, I think, Jean-Philippe, your remarks have, have uh, uh, stimulated some reactions from the panel. So, Andrew, I think you wanted to kind of uh, yeah. intervene or reflect on some of the comments that you've heard. Yeah, sure. So, Jean-Philippe, if you ever feel like anyone at the DFI, particularly DFC, is telling you that something, you can't do it because it's too difficult. That's when you pick up the phone and you call me because that's my job is to make sure that we do the difficult things that make sense. But a couple of things that I want to point out, I'm going to tell you tell you all two stories, right? When I was a uh, Power Africa coordinator, I would go and I would brag to people in our Congress about how Power Africa as a partnership helped 120 power projects worth over $20 billion reach financial close. And it only cost us $500 million in appropriated dollars to achieve that $20 billion. And everybody in the Congress was loved that and said, wow, you know, you got a 40, 40 to one leverage for the amount of money that we gave you to do this project, I mean, to do this, this program. Now I'm gonna tell you the same story. Well, let's pretend that as a DFI, I said, we've invested in 120 power projects that are worth $20 billion but we have lost $500 million doing that. It's the exact same story. The money comes from the same place. It comes from the same US Congress, but the cultural and the psychological difference of having lost $500 million on a portfolio basis, it's suddenly an outrage. And we gotta get people to get past that because that's what the role of a public institution is. We are not a commercial bank. And if we can lose $500 million, but get, 
$20 billion out there for 120 projects, we're being tremendously successful. We're helping shape future markets. And we're so long as we step away. The other point that I made about like how I don't really care how much money we, we actually move, my perfect world would be that, D, that DFC doesn't disperse a single dollar. In fact, what I think we should be doing is getting projects all ready and pretend that we're going to be doing it because nobody's interested. But at the very last minute, say to a commercial bank, okay, we've done all this work. Now do you want to take this over from us? Because that's the role of a public institution. And we don't put as much money at risk. So we have to stop thinking that we are commercial bankers. We have to think like commercial bankers, but we're not. We're a public institution that's designed for delivering development or foreign policy results. And it's, I think all the DFIs and MFIs have to remind themselves of that. Yeah, but Andy, you know that most of your colleagues don't say it. I know. And that's what I'm saying. This is a psychological and a cultural issue. And I can say that having come from USAID, I was the lawyer who helped design our loan guarantee program, which is now at DFC. And it was shocking to me during the height of COVID when suddenly the team that came over from USAID brought a deal forward to do lending to, 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 to farmers. And I thought it was a spectacular program. We were going to have to use $5 million of appropriated dollars in order to to lend 35 million. And I said, wow, we should we should do make it 10 times the size. But from the people at OPIC, the idea of taking $5 million to help offset the risk, it was an outrage. Like there's too, way too much risk associated with this project. But from the AID side, they're thinking like, instead of spending $35 million in grants, we're only using $5 million in order to release $35 million in lending. And there's a good chance that we're going to get paid back on most of that. So, so it's this, this huge psychological and cultural disconnect between development institutions, the donor development institutions, and the development finance institutions. And my job is to try to reduce that and get them to be meeting more in the middle. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. And just maybe just before we come to the Kinnick, I mean, Catherine, you wanted to pick up on a couple of points on, on leverage and, and pension funds that uh, colleagues have raised. Well, perhaps actually immediately on, on that leverage um, point, I think there are, you know, Andy, to follow your example, two stories um, to come in on. One would be yeah, quite recently corporate telecoms bond issuance, actually getting the likes of the Emerging Africa Infrastructure Fund and DEG to come in as anchor investors on something like that, end up with the best possible outcome where actually their potential input was, was scaled down because of actually better demand than they perhaps anticipated. That to me is a, is a win-win because they've come in, they've helped anchor that issuance. It provides comfort to others um, on both the legal structures, the due diligence, as well as frankly that initial in investor interest they don't actually have to put forward the amount of money that was initially anticipated. I think that kind of impact can be hugely powerful. And in that way, you're also helping create and support the capital markets, which gives them to the points made earlier and out at the point that that seems sensible. Um, I think those are important. And I think the other bit we haven't really addressed, but we've talked a bit about the role of commercial banks. And, and Jean-Philippe, you talked about how, how you are viewed and the amount of support that can be deployed to smaller, newer organizations. I think actually both the DFIs and the donors can play a really important role thinking about how they fund new vehicles, 
be it through guarantees, be it through official recourse, be it through funding. Um, because if, I, if I'm totally honest from a commercial bank perspective, when we're rating partner organizations, looking at our exposure to them, the recourse to a sovereign, the guarantee structures that are in place, not to the on-lenders, but to the actual entities themselves, matter a huge amount. And even for a donor or DFI having flexibility and thinking that the impact they have through the way they structure and fund other vehicles can be hugely impactful. I'm not sure we've quite captured how that impact is measured and taken into account as part of the DFI's work well enough for that to be scaled up because that can have a, a, a huge impact. Uh, thank you, colleagues. So I'm going to open up the floor for Q&A. Uh, we've had some really interesting questions come through. So I'm going to... Um, We've had a question come in uh, about this issue around, we haven't actually spoken around, around DFIs doing more technical assistance to build markets and, and transactions. Um, so should should DFIs be doing that or is that for the development agencies? I'm not sure um, anyone who would like to take that question. Maybe Andrew, what's the, yeah, what's the so position of the DFC? So we actually have now the ability to do technical assistance. Um, uh, that was another one of the changes that was when, when DFC was created. So we have a, a technical assistance window. They're generally it's generally linked to projects in which we are investing or planning to invest. So it's not we can't just do a market study. I mean we can in some cases, but the idea is it should be linked to a project. Um, but we obviously we work very very closely with USAID and other agencies to make sure that projects are getting the technical assistance that they need. For example. A uh, wind project that 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 DFC is financing in Kenya that needed a study done because there was an issue with the migratory bird species. USAID stepped in and did that study. Thank you. And maybe, maybe just to pick up a, a bit more on that point. I mean, one of the things we found in in our research, and I guess at the risk of generalisation, is a a kind of a, an investment approach by DFIs, which is, if you like. Um, deal driven, if you like, opportunistic, rather than a, a more strategic view of, of investment to create you know, sectors. Um, and technical assistance and grant finance is really important there. How do you see, you know, how, how can DFIs change this? So that, that's been the main cultural shift that I've been pushing at DFC is to stop being a reactive organization and just talking to your client and saying, hey, what deals do you have? And we're going to do this and then measuring your impact on a deal by deal basis, but rather saying, all right, strategically, we wanna have this impact across the sector. So our roadmap for impact identifies six sectors, healthcare, energy, food security, water and sanitation, financial inclusion, and infrastructure and, and communications. We wanna see on a portfolio wide basis, can we have an impact, which means reaching out and diversifying our client base. About 80% of OPIC's business came from the same 20 clients. That's ridiculous. So this is a big change. So what we've been doing at DFC is we've actually been organizing virtual town halls with local companies all over Africa to make sure they're aware of our tools because it's important for us to diversify our client base, but also identify opportunities on a sector-wide basis to see if we can really use our portfolio to move the needle on a sector-wide basis for development. Thank but it's you. not without controversy. I mean, there are a lot of people within DFC who still believe, and and there's a, it's a legitimate point of view that we have to follow the private capital and do with the clients, that we can't 
create markets. I think there's somewhere in between, and we've seen this with IFC, where they just hire 300 people for the purpose of doing upstream project development for the very purpose of trying to have impact on a sector-wide basis or in certain markets. Okay. Of course, not, not all DFIs have that capacity or resource. So I guess there's an issue around kind of collaboration and, and coordination there. Now, Jean-Philippe, another question that's come in directed for you is, uh, can you please tell us why you see DFIs as risk-averse and um, are they negating their catalytic roles? Oh, that's very simple. I'm looking for $50 million for the first losses of four blended finance funds, and I'm not finding it. And none of the DFIs said yes to invest in the first loss catalytic tranche of blended finance vehicles. That's the, the basic simple answer. Um, and, and again, I'm talking from a very biased angle, which is my experience in the trenches, you know, working small scale, um, in difficult markets and with small, you know, small SMEs and small companies at their early stage of their development. Um, but I'm not finding this capital to uh, de-risk private sector that should be channeled to that sector. That's precisely why I'm saying that they are risk averse. Let me add to that, Sam, an example of a discussion I had uh, two days ago with a DFI on a new concept that we're trying to launch in Africa. And the first question the DFI person asks is, well, who's providing the first loss? And at least 50%, please. And if the answer is, uh, well, some of you guys, then, well, no. And, and the Sam, if I, if I may just continue just very briefly, um, it, it happened to us sometimes that, you know, we were successful in getting government money directly, right? Uh, public sector money in the first loss. And then their question, which I think is legitimate, is why would we guarantee DFIs coming in the senior tranche or lending money to our fund when actually we're de-risking private sector? <laughs> you see, so so th then then we are in a difficult position because not only have we found this time, you know, some public money to de-risk private sector, but then talking to DFIs saying, now that we are protected, we're willing to come protected by some governments in Europe, um that that's a very difficult conversation you see and that's again why i'm saying that um hopefully you know there's additional windows of risk-taking opportunities that are created within dfis um, thank you um there's a question on on impact a couple of questions which have come in on on impact so maybe i'll, I'll direct these to to joist and 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 andrew and others as well so i mean as you mentioned, I think a really important issue around kind of KPIs and really no KPIs around what market development kind of looks looks like. And I guess if you don't if you don't measure it, it doesn't get get done. Uh, that adage. So it's kind of um, there's a question which come in is is what do you consider as impact and and how do you measure it? So maybe uh, reflect on that. And and Andrew, there was a question that came in um, around impact and, and volume, saying. Uh, you're insisting on impact rather than volumes, and the World Bank has been claiming this for years. But this doesn't work in a model where a DFI must be financially self-sustainable. The risk profitability volume equation is the same for all DFIs. I think you might have have touched on that, but maybe, maybe if I can, um, you know, what do we mean by 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 impact? 
So, so two things. First, the point about, well, this is what DFIs have been doing for years. Well, what I'm saying is people really need to rethink the DFI model because it's not being successful. People have gotten very comfortable and, and you really need to shake this up and think about it differently. But in terms of impact, what DFC is doing, we have a, a developed this really state of the art um, tool for measuring impact. It's called the impact quotient, the IQ. And it was developed in consultation with development stakeholders and other DFIs and IFIs. And we analyze each project based on its de anticipated development impact, um, looking at innovation, um, economic growth, um, and, why and inclusion as well, and then subsectors. And we really use you know, economists looking at the impact of every deal and they're given a score. And then we measure that, um, we measure that sort of throughout the, 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 the time of the, the transaction as well. So we're gonna have to step up our M&E. But we also are looking at, this is the idea behind our development strategy is looking at a sector-wide basis. It's one thing for an individual project to have impact, but are we making sure that as on a portfolio wide basis, we're having an impact? So this is why it was so important when we developed, we launched our development strategy. It wasn't just about investing $10 billion in energy, but it was making sure that at least 10 million people get access to electricity. It wasn't just about um, investing in ICT, but making sure that people are actually getting access to the internet. So we're re requiring all of our deal officers as they bring forward a transaction to talk about how the particular transaction is going to advance the metrics that we've identified. Okay. Uh, do you have any reflections on impact? Yeah, so um, obviously it's very easy to measure mobilized money. So that's not particularly the issue, but it's more the quality of the mobilization uh, that, that needs to be taken care of. And so there's a there, the way we've, we've done it, for instance, for Garantco within the PIDGE, is that we score certain qualitative elements of the transaction and add to that, but it re that requires quite a good understanding of what that means. So within the institution that works, but it's very specific to the institution. And there's not yet much, uh, I'll give you an example of, of the ultimate impact, also what Andy was saying. In Nigeria, we were uh, partic participating in the creation of InfraCredit Nigeria, which is guaranteeing deals for pension funds locally. And the institution started work in 2018. Last year, the first infrastructure deals were placed in the market without any guarantee. So the absence of InfraCredit was its most strong impact. Uh, and so how do you um, uh, weave that into uh, the impact, uh, the KPIs, other than a good story, is very hard to do. In particular, because the causality is is not easy to prove. Uh, if you don't, if you're not daily into the market, you don't. If you don't know what's going on between all the players, it's hard to 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 be certain that the fact that InfraCredit did two or three transactions three years ago, and then you know another bunch of deals the year after, led to the pension funds being happy to invest without guarantee a few years later. So okay. it's, a, it's a complex field to, to, to navigate, is my opinion. Okay, thank you. And one last question, Catherine, maybe just, just one minute, a question that's come in uh, for you is that um, you've mentioned an expansive mandate which rests with public institution, vast roles, expansive governance, and a lack of it, um, and a lack of a similar mandate in private institutions 
what is the need for innovation in the mandate for private institutions? Can you say just briefly a little bit more than that? And then I'm afraid we're, we're out of time and I'll quickly wrap up. I mean, look, every, every private institution has a, a different goal. If they're publicly owned, there's a return for shareholder, there's responsibility to their employees, responsibility to the communities and the environments in, in which they operate and different entities will have different priorities within that. I, I think the point really to make is about how do we align the goals and to come back to that point of impact, the measurement of impact, so that if we are looking at how DFIs transition over time out of a role, and to Drew's point, actually, do you end up with them not being involved as your ultimate outcome? You're helping set up the structural situation um, such that there's more of a seamless transition from a DFI needing to be involved to frankly not being involved. I don't think that's going to necessarily change people's complete mandate. It's more about the objectives they are trying to achieve and how do we kind of bring them from here, meet somewhere in the middle. Okay, well, I'm afraid we, we have run out of time. Um, we have had some questions I'm afraid I haven't been able to bring to the panel. So my my apologies. Um, I just wanted to thank everyone. I mean, I've it's been super interesting to listen to this conversation. I've, I've, I think three things for me have stuck out from, from this. One is this, you know, this kind of mindset about what DFIs are, are there to do. Um, and then with that, this issue around business models, and I've heard very clearly, you know, issues around high-risk capital, that early stage kind of investment. And of course, the business model change and, and, and mindset that needs to change to enable that, that to happen, but also the objectives and then the kind of KPIs and incentives uh, which will drive also change in behaviour. So it seems that there's some kind of you know there's some structural issues which we need to quite urgently urgently address. Um, I found the conversation really really refreshing. Um, thank you all for for your time. I hope the audience have enjoyed uh, enjoyed enjoyed the conversation. And um, the report I believe will will now be live on on our website. So um, thanks once again everybody. Um, take care of yourselves and um, join us soon at ODI for another uh, conversation. Bye.